Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Fish experience is, uh, for me, living on the other side of the world, I guess less about a community as it is more just about uh, enjoying good music and watching a band evolve. That's how it is. Life as a European fish fan, you can be a fan <laughs> for a decade and I've not seen them live once. Yeah. The, I first heard of fish through watching live videos on YouTube. And without that, none of our friends or anyone would even know what fish is because there is no opportunity to experience it live over here. Well, they don't need to. You know, if, 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 if they can, you know, sell out 13 nights at Madison Square Garden, then carry on. I mean, just the fact that, I mean, when you travel and, and you're seeing other cultures and you're with other people, you're enlightened. And when you add fish music into the mix, triple that. And then when you add you know, psychedelics into that mix, then it's quadrupled. It's this thing on the other side of the world that I watch and enjoy and, uh, and obsess over, I guess is the best way to sum it up. But the idea of traveling to see them didn't appeal to me. And now I'm completely taking the red pill or the blue pill or whichever pill it is that makes you leave your wife and kids and go see fish wherever they are.
Hi, I'm Tom Marshall. I write the lyrics for Fish, and so far this season on Undermine, we've mimicked the Fish show experience from the fan perspective as we highlighted Fish's ever-colorful community. From the stereotypical Fish fan that might provide a predictable late-night punchline Everybody's from Burlington? Yeah, you need a ride home? to the wooks and crannies of the scene where subgroups meet, mix, and coexist on the GA dance floor. What we found is that the ocean really is a lot of drops of water, and that anybody who still thinks the fish scene is homogeneous just hasn't dipped beneath the surface. Of course, all the fish tribes do have some commonalities, above and beyond the love for the music, starting with a deep dedication to seeing this band live as often as possible. We talked to over 100 fish fans this season, and most of them have been to over 100 shows, some even more than 300, and a few, present company included, upwards of 400. This kind of diehard dedication is representative of the general fan base, and this kind of behavior is simply unfathomable to most music fans of most other bands. But that's just because none of those other bands are fish. There's a recurring joke inside the industry that fish actually only has enough fans to fill one arena. We just go to every show. Is there truth in that? Some. Maybe. Most of you listening have traveled over 100 miles to see this band. Many of you have traveled 500 miles, and many of you would travel 500 more. But what about over 10,000 miles? Going once, going twice, sold to the man from down under over there. This week on Undermine, we're going to cross the open seas to connect with our international charters. We're going to talk to fans from Japan, Australia, the United Kingdom, and Fish Tour expatriates currently scattered across the globe. Then we're going to reverse it and talk to some Americans about seeing fish abroad. We're going to talk to the dude who runs Fish Fashion with a PH, on Twitter, out of Kyoto, Japan. And we're going to talk to the guy who's responsible for embedding all those fish references in the American television series, The Soup. So grab your raft, grab your oar, put on your life jacket. We're going around the world in 60 minutes, right after these commercial messages. Before the detour, we established that you may have had to take a plane, train, or automobile to catch fish live. And more than a few of you will still remember waiting 16 hours plus in the standstill traffic on Alligator Alley to get into Big Cypress. Hopefully time has lined that distant memory with fondness. 
but while you likely have crossed state lines to see fish, every single time Dylan Bowen wants to see fish, he has to cross the world's largest ocean. That's because Dylan is an Australian fish fan. G'day, my name's Dylan Bain from Sydney, Australia. The furthest I've travelled for a fish show is 10,019 miles or 16,125 kilometres. The internet tells me that is the distance from Sydney, Australia to Coventry, Vermont. So uh, 10,000 miles is the furthest I've travelled for a fish show, which is actually further than Big Cypress, I I checked. Please remember, the right lane is for travelling and the left lane is for passing. Stay out of the left lane unless you're passing and let's have some peace and harmony in the 21st century. My first fish show was December 29th, 1997 at Madison Square Garden. I had just graduated the 12th grade and my graduation present was a trip to America and I got to see this band Fish, whose tapes I'd been collecting for a little while. And what was amazing was back then, pre-internet, when you were just doing tape trading, was I hadn't heard any of the 97 stuff yet, I don't think, at that point, or the full 97 stuff. So it sounded like a completely new band to me at this stage. Madison Square Garden, absolutely incredible. I mean, I'm still listening to Fish, so clearly life-changing. Of all the fans we're going to check in with today, Dylan is one of the luckier ones. He's seen Fish live more than once on the band's home turf. That could have been him next to you in the Chaka block, and only now are you beginning to realize that yes, his accent is real. Let's hear more of it. My first fish tape was Dane County Coliseum, Madison, Wisconsin, October 24th, 1995. I picked the show at random based off the set list. I was doing a bit of tape trading at the time and I kind of only had Hoist. So I I saw this tape had a few songs of Hoist on it, including what I thought was Demand, but of course turned out to be Split Open and Melt as the ending jam on Demand on the Hoist album. But then what a great coincidence, this show had a great Split Open and Melt on it. So yeah, very average show for the time for Fall 95. But as a new fan, it had everything you want. It had a Raging You Enjoy Myself, a great antelope contact. It had weird antics with Acoustic Army. You know, it had a bit of that kind of spacey jamming they they did and, and a lot of the songs I loved off Hoist. So at the time... It was everything a new fan could want. And it was so bizarre. I remember listening to You Enjoy Myself going, is this another song now? Is this another song now? But it was all the same song. So uh, it was, uh, yeah, in, in retrospect, I probably picked a perfect show for my first tape. In Australia, on the other side of the world in the 90s, uh, nobody knew who Fish was. The Grateful Dead were never big here. You never saw anyone wearing Grateful Dead shirts. They never toured here. No one knew them. Uh, So there wasn't a jam band scene here. However, we did have a bit of the early 90s 
jam bands on the radio here. Spin Doctors got huge and I kind of was obsessed with watching them on TV because they were very, they looked like a bunch of fun hippies. And I was like, this is completely against everything that's happening at the, in music world right now. It wasn't grunge. It wasn't dark. It wasn't, it was very light and happy and represented something that grabbed me. And from there, I got into Blues Traveller, who maybe got played a little bit on the radio here, but I think I probably saw on Letterman. Letterman was on here every night. And then around about probably 94, 95, I got on the internet for the first time in the very, very early days. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Fish. I have to say my fish Sherpas were the fish community itself. Uh, I would go on the fish chat room or rec music fish because they were the biggest groups on the internet at the time in the news group in the chat rooms. Everyone on there was uh, absolutely delightful. As we've already established in episode one of this season, beginning in the early 90s, the World Wide Web began to form a World Wide Web that wove the whole world into a unified digital network. It allowed the word of fish to spread not only across college campuses in the Northeast, but even to other continents, albeit just not as commonly, since fish's largest presence was always in the areas where the band was able to perform live. Meanwhile, on an island on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, British fish fan Mark Lewis has found his own connection with the band and their music, and it's a foreign experience for most of ours. So my name is Mark Lewis. I'm in the northwest of England in a town called Warrington. I've seen zero fish shows, um, partly because they've only ever played three in my country. And that was about six years before I really discovered them. Uh, So too late to the party, really. Mark lives about 15 miles from Liverpool, where the Beatles got their start. 15 miles from Manchester, where bands like Oasis and the Smiths first emerged. 250 miles from London, where Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd all formed and well over 5,000 miles, 20 times as far as London, from his home to where Fish just wrapped up their fall 2021 tour in Las Vegas. I've been to 26 states, and so I, I love America. And you guys say Anglophile for people that are interested in England. I'm kind of the other way around. So, uh, so how does a reverse Anglophile get into fish when the band hasn't played your country in 24 years? Like everyone alive, Mark has an origin story. My first experience was I, I bought a live one uh, in the late late 90s. And I can't really remember what prompted it, but I I think I was in New York. I I guess I kind of liked the cover and I must have read something about them, but I hadn't heard anything. And I I bought a live one. I really liked Bouncing Around the Room, the first track, although I I did think it sounded like Paul Simon. And then there's a a You Enjoy Myself, which is great. And it it was Slave that stood out for me. And I remember just leaving the CD on uh, I'm not really paying attention, just having it as background, but then sort of looking up, thinking, oh, that was good. What just happened there? And of course, it was the guitar jam in the end of Slaves in the Traffic Line. Uh, and that's what kind of stood out for me. But then you put this two in, and then you get a 30 minute tweezer, which is pretty much unlistenable. 
for those of you expecting this to take an unexpected turn here, rest assured, Mark also bought and enjoyed Billy Breathes. But in typical English fashion, he might relay that by saying, It's fine, it's okay. It's not Sergeant Pepper, but whatever. Good day, sir. If I was going to talk to somebody and say, how do I think I'm going to get them into fish, give them a selection of highlights, I I might go straight to Island Tour 98 as a a really great selection of everything that's good about fish. is my favourite song that I have discovered in the last 30 years, I would say. And I'm a big classic rock and, and all kinds of music fan. But Harry Hood, Reba, Slave, Divided Sky, they, they really just get me. And I hadn't heard anything like that. The idea of, well, we're going to do a five-minute song and then we're just going to do this guitar build-up for about 10 minutes And, you know, I I like classic rock and I like classic rock with long guitar solos in that kind of, that soar and take you away and however we might phrase it. But they might do that for about a minute and a half. Uh, And then, you know, you get a Reba or a a Hood or something. And, well, we're going to do it for 10 minutes. And I'd never heard anything like that. Uh, And we don't have anything like that in our music over here. There's no comparisons over here. So that partly, I think, explains why there is no audience for that kind of music over here. But No audience for Fish's music in the UK? Weird. Everyone we talked to from the United Kingdom sure seemed like they were fans. We talked to exactly three Brits, and two of them are brothers. It's interesting as well, actually, that that's the first one you saw, because if I'm trying to introduce fish to people, I'll play them one of those like New Year's Eve spectacular things, either the hot dog or the golf one, because it's way harder to sit them down and go, right, have you got 25 minutes, listen to the, listen to the jam and wait for this moment and that. Yeah. Whereas if they see like a bit more of a spectacle instantly, it's way more engaging. That's Joe Burns. It's pretty funny to be playing like obscure fish songs in like some random Norfolk countryside pub is pretty fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and his brother James. The Burns brothers play together in a band called Garanfo. G-U-R-A-N-F-O-E. Go to YouTube and check out their British interpretation of Divided Sky. And it's also like, like the look of fish. I'm not being funny, but they don't like. They're never going to be like mainstream popular just because of the way they look, honestly. And the music isn't like instantly gratifying. It is a sort of thing that takes hours of listening. It's a shame, but that's the way you know popular culture is basically. I probably like sent people shortish clips of like tray shredding and stuff. Yeah, I, I imagine that's the first sort of thing because it is like. You can instantly see how phenomenal they are on a music level. And then, you know, you can start having a conversation about, oh, well, they run their own festivals that tens of thousands of people attend, but they're not mainstream at all. You know, they have, like, running gags that span decades and all this, and that sort of then hooks people in a bit more. Yeah, it's like any 
any people that I ask when I meet people and we're talking about music, do you know of fish? It's like it's so it's so rare for one of them to be like, yeah, occasionally like one in one in twenty, one in thirty people that I have a music conversation with. Or if they do know them, they know of them and they know that it's kind of like, you know, a jam scene or whatever, but they don't actually know the music or any any anything like in depth at all. I mean most of them don't know at all. It's people that have just heard of it in the same vein that they've heard of the dead or something like that. Yeah, there's a sort of vague concept of like the American jam band sort of scene, and there's, and there's yeah. a few people that will know of like Trey as like on his guitar side of things, but no one really has a sort of in-depth understanding, or no one that we've come across. There's a few people, but um, they just won't have an understanding of the you know the sort of depth of the jam band scene is such a like ingrained American sort of element of the culture it seems like that just hasn't really come across here like all the people i know in this country who are into fish are musicians and it's because you can straight away appreciate that all of them are such phenomenal players and it's very easy to get into that way like if you see any drummer will appreciate what fishman's doing and it's just across the whole band it's the the same thing whereas the culture of it like in like the scene you can only really experience that if you're in america because fish will just has never come hasn't in two decades ever even come over here. growing impatient when there was a 17-month gap between shows. Just as Undermine listeners' first exposure to Garanfo will be on YouTube any minute now, Garanfo's Joe Burns' first exposure to Fish was on YouTube. There's a repeating trend that we'll see not only this season on Undermine, but that's also a recurring pattern throughout our entire lifetimes. Technology can increasingly bring all of our tribes closer together, despite miles or even oceans between. The, the first time I ever came across fish, it was right after the, the golf New Year's Eve, where they had all the golf carts going across the stage and all that. And I first saw just videos on YouTube, and I was like, what the hell is this? Absolutely insane bands playing, you know, super complex stuff, also doing ridiculous, like, jokes on stage and just insane, like, big set pieces and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Dude, those weren't jokes. The band was being completely serious. They can, and will, stage a runaway golf cart marathon, and they are most definitely rich in minerals. You guys remember Mark Lewis? You should. You just met him five minutes ago. He's the reverse Anglophile whose fish experience feels like it's halfway around the world for many of ours. I did dip into the fantasy tour message board uh, and I really didn't get it. And I thought, what what's going on here? But, um, but let's be honest, I've never done drugs and I don't know what a, a wook is, a wook, wook. So that, that scene is not for me. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't 
breathing balloons outside a, a concert venue and things. So um, uh, that's not my scene. Let's go here just a little bit. I would say zero profile in the UK. Honestly, absolutely nothing. You know, we like our classic rock. We like our heavy rock. We like our thrash metal. uh, We like our blues rock. But we don't have a jam band scene. Uh, We don't have amphitheatres. You you know, you've got one in every town. You you have summer shows all the way through. We don't have the climate for that. It it has no profile. uh, And... Fish have played in England three times. They played a theatre in London in 96, Shepherd's Bush Empire. Um, And then they did a full show at the Royal Albert Hall, which is a showpiece venue in London, but it's it's not huge. It's maybe 4,000, 4,500 capacity. And it's mostly for classical music. It's, it's, It's designed that way, like a symphony hall. They played a full show in June 97, when I think they were touring Europe, weren't they? And possibly they were supporting Santana sometimes, uh, I think. And then they played Glastonbury Festival. Now, Glastonbury Festival is famous over here. It, it's a... It's a showpiece landmark event in in England. It it has full coverage for three days on the BBC for free-to-air national broadcaster, and it's a a coup for for them to headline Glastonbury. So it's got this huge profile. And Fish, I've I've looked into this, Fish did play there in 1997 in June. They were first on the bill on the first day. And the, the the lineup on that Friday on the main, they've, they've got about four or five different stages, but they were on the main stage, but they were first on the whole weekend, which would have been about one o'clock on a Friday afternoon when people are still just setting up the campsites and so on. And there was, it was Fish, Echo and the Bunnymen, Terrorvision, The Levelers, they're an indie band, Beck, Supergrass, Smashing Pumpkins and The Prodigy. So Fish were first on the, and they, they did about an hour set, and that's it. And since then, nothing. Uh, that's, that's what, that's 14 years ago. Yes, I know. That's 119 to you and me. But let it go. They might count years differently over there. Just as emerging technology in the early 90s helped create and support the band's first fan base here in America, the later evolution of that very same technology, which gave rise to the Live Fish app, the Relisten app, the Dinner and a Movie YouTube series, Trey Anastasio's Beacon Jams on Twitch, and the band's real-time live streams on their own platform, is now bringing an international fish community together strengthening their emotional bonds with both the band and our community across time zones and cultural divides. Let's check back in with our Aussie friend, Dylan. So over my lifetime of being into fish since the mid-90s, the technology has just revolutionized everything. I mean, it was great getting stacks of tapes in the mail. That was the best feeling in the world. But it's also great being able to have the show on live 
while you're at work or at the gym or sitting on the couch on a Saturday morning. Like nothing beats that either. So look, you know, the internet has revolutionized uh, the fan experience. And if anything, it makes us fans overseas feel a lot more connected. Um, and it makes us feel a lot more connected than if, if there was no uh, live streaming or couch tour, we'd probably just be looking at the set list going, oh, okay. When Dylan wants to get his ass off the couch and actually catch a live show, he has to travel all the way to America to do it every time. It's that thing you treat yourself every few years and you save up your money and, and go to America and try and jam in as many as many concerts as you, as you can into about two or three weeks. And then you come home and then that sets you up for the next couple of years. The last time Fish played Europe was 1998. Japan, 2000. Iceland, never. And Mexico, pack your sunscreen. Meet our wonderful new friend Satoshi, from Japan. Please forgive his pronunciation. Everything he knows about our language he learned on Fish Lot, or from Fish Lyrics, which, if you ask me, aren't always... I'm Satoshi, from Japan. My name is spelled S-A-T-O-S-H-I, not S-A-N-T-O-S. My place is 30 minutes by subway to central Tokyo. I'm 52 years old, but I'm noob. He's actually not a noob. Like you, he started off as one, but Satoshi has now seen over 100 shows, all of them in America, beginning with Jones Beach in 2009. We're pretty sure he earns some kind of badge for that. I thought to myself, I've learned some fish culture from American fish fans. I prefer feel to run. I hope I became considerate, kind, and friendly to other people. Here on Undermine, we've talked with fans who have performed fish covers, either in fish tribute bands or as part of their own otherwise original repertoire. We love this kind of stuff because it's cool to be in your local watering hole and hearing your home team try to work their way through bouncing around the room. But on the international stage, there are fans for whom fish covers are the closest they get to the real deal. Just ask Satoshi, reporting from our Japanese outpost, how he first heard of fish. Yeah, my favorite Japanese band played fish cover songs, like First Two, Divide the Sky. After that, some of my Japanese friends suggested listening to the real fish and going to see fish in person. Japanese friends asked me to go to Hampton for the reunion show. I was confused because I didn't know how to process coastal tickets or airplane tickets. Also, I'd never visited America and I couldn't speak English friendly. I got my second chance to see fish because Japan's body had extra tickets for the 2009 summer tour in John the Beach. So I quickly decided to go there. I heard fish for the first time in John's Beach on June 4th, 2009. So many people tired getting in the parking lot. It was spectacular. I was excited to experience the American culture firsthand. I really wanted to interact with American friends, but I had no way to communicate with them. 
I did my hundred show at Fenway in 2009. I've seen 107 shows so far. They were all amazing. I remember that I felt my mind change from liking fish to loving fish when I saw fish at Facebook ad because most fans were warm, kind, and friendly. Anyway, it turned out that fish loves their audience, and the audience loves fish. Without love, there is nothing. Yeah, I was completely addicted to fish because the air around the fish concert was totally different than I've seen at other concerts. Well, good to know the lyrics to more weren't lost in translation. Speaking of translation, Satoshi says Fish gets the Japanese chorus to meat stick mostly right in its translation. It's the delivery that needs work. I've heard meat stick ten times. I first heard it at my first show in John's Beach. I felt it sounds like Russian <laughs> because their pronunciation was a little better like my English. I can teach fish how to pronounce the Japanese lyrics at the next Japan tour. Since 1999, some fish fans have high-fived themselves for being able to recite Time for the Meat Stick, Bury the Meat Stick in what Satoshi jokes is Russian-Japanese. Meanwhile, Satoshi is a Japanese fan who learned English from interacting with the fish community. Is that some kind of wookish dialect? Let's consult the Helping Friendly book. We have to fetch it off the shelf. And the shelf is locked behind glass in King Wilson's castle on a faraway mountaintop. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Well, we're discovering the interesting and non-traditional ways that fish fans overseas first discovered and then connected with this scene. Naturally, too, the band's music, ethos, iconography, and culture has been exported by expats who hopped off fish tour for adventures abroad. You can take the fan off lot, but you can never shake the lot off the fan. Let's meet F. Alex Johnson. I was working in, on Martha's Vineyard. I was 21. It was 1991. Uh, a friend of mine was working at David's Fish House or David's Ocean House, I think the name of the place was. I don't think it's there anymore. But all the people that worked in the restaurant got put up in apartments above the restaurant. And uh, we would hang out after work drinking Black Label, Tall Boys, and golden anniversaries and whatnot. And we were hanging out one time and he pulled out a cassette 
of Junta. And it was the classic Pollock cover. And I was like, well, that's cool. It looks interesting. Let's listen to it. So he played the cassette in a dark and dingy apartment above a very busy restaurant. And that was it. I heard Fee. I heard the rest of it all. And I just went, this is good. This is new. This is interesting. So I moved to the Pioneer Valley shortly after that, that fall and kind of well I guess my first show I had to go see this band so my first show was at the Greenfield Armory in Greenfield Massachusetts in December of 1991 and that was a pretty landmark show for me I was hooked I remember wandering around with those riffs in my head all trays crazy guitar sounds just going nuts in my brain after the show and uh, that was pretty much it So far, F. Alex Johnson's story seems fairly typical for a Northeast 1.0 fan from Northampton, Massachusetts. He followed the band closely from 1991 to 1995, took a break so he could pursue his own musical career, met his wife Jody, who was so into fish she traveled all the way to Europe to see them in 1996, and together they enjoyed Fish's 3.0 era as a couple, much like any other New England Fish 3.0 couple. But then their story diverges. We moved to Japan to, I don't know, escape America a little bit. I'd given America 49 of my best years, and things were getting weird with the whole political situation. It was just time to try something new. And so we had come to Japan a few times. I was involved with a group called the Young at Heart Chorus, and they're a group of senior citizens. They've been around for over 30 years, and they perform... Uh, covers of amazing artists' music and perform all over the world. There was a movie made about them called Young at Heart. <laughs> we got them to, as a we, me and my wife, uh, coerced them into performing free, Fishes Free. And if you look up Young at Heart Chorus and Free, you will find that on YouTube. And it's a pretty amazing performance of, of that tune. play guitar in that group 
And it's just a, it was a dream come true to get to do that tune with these guys. But we got to come to Japan on tour twice, and then we came here on our honeymoon in 2018, and we just said, how can we live here? And there's really not too many ways you can do that. One of them is teaching English. We put a plan in action. Now we both live here and teach English in Kyoto, Japan. We should mention that in addition to continuing to make his own music at colorwaymusic.com, Johnson also stays connected to the fish scene from his home in Kyoto by running the Fish Fashion Twitter handle. It's been a neat way to talk about the band, but not talk about the music. Because everyone talks about the music, and that's awesome. The music is why we're all here. But I kind of wanted to just find a way to talk about fish, but not really talk about the jams or talk about the songs or anything about that or the lights. You know, it's just this is about the clothes. And of course, the choices behind the clothes and the way the clothes make you feel, the way the clothes make you look, and the way the clothes make you feel when you look at them. This podcast is not sponsored by YouTube, by the way. But Alex was right earlier when he mentioned that there's a worthwhile YouTube clip of the Young at Heart chorus covering fish. We forgive you if you pause here to cue it up for reference, for research, or just for fun. That's amazing. We really are everywhere. And that's kind of the point of this episode. To show just how far across everywhere we are at this point, and how the fish experience translates to the far corners. The great thing about being a fish fan in Australia or on the other side of the world is you're completely anonymous. You wear a fish shirt, nobody knows what it is. Uh, I didn't see fish in Europe or Japan. I was a bit young at the time. But that said, it is... I have to say, having been to Japan for Fuji Rock in 2014, there's still a lot of fish fans there. I saw quite a few fish shirts, and I went to the Field of Heaven stage at Fuji Rock that was set up for fish, and fish has a real legacy at the Fuji Rock Festival with that amazing tucked-away little stage where they have all the local jam bands and the and the visiting ones. So I don't know what it was like to see fish in, in Europe or Japan. I can only imagine. I can only fantasise. But I really hope they come back soon because I'll be I'll be on the first flight to Japan... specialized community in Japan. Uh, some people get together to watch dinner and movie and so on. For me and some of my Japanese friends, fish lives are speechless. I sometimes imagine that if fish held the Japan tour again, which venues would be best? I predict if fish held the Japan tour again, they would need a venue with 10,000 seats. 
I guess there are about 4,000 to 5,000 Japanese friends nationwide, and more people will come from overseas. I really wish they'd come back to Japan uh, or travel Europe again or come to Australia. That would be that would be fantastic. In fact, even Japan would be amazing if they played there regularly because that's in our time zone. We could watch those shows live at night, so that would be great. Not to mention we have Japan is basically a neighbourhood country for us. We can get cheap flights there. So, yes, Fish, if you hear this, please, please gift the rest of the world with your music. Don't stay in, in North America. F. Alex Johnson reports that from his perspective as a former Yankee Doodle, that there may, in fact, be a burgeoning Japanese scene after all. And while it's still small potatoes compared to the fish belt of the American Northeast, the Japan scene may be more significant than we might imagine. There are absolutely fans here. Of course, Fish played here in 2000, did a bunch of shows. I just recently copped a shirt from that tour on the Japanese Yahoo auctions. And I don't know how uh, widespread this is, but I have seen a few people on Twitter, Japanese people on Twitter that call themselves Japans, J-A-P-H-A-N-S. But yeah, there's, there's even a store in Kyoto called Farmhouse. And he stocks Grateful Dead, Americana-inspired fish gear, some stuff. And he's even got uh, skateboards up there with Fishman's likeness and Jerry's likeness up there. Pretty amazing. There's a guy who makes bags here with the Fishman Donut logo inspired on it called Saka Noate. And that means to the fish. And just last month, in fact, my wife and I were able to go to Nara here in Japan, not too far from Kyoto and see a great photo exhibit that fish photographer Renee Humer put on with uh, Cherie Hansen at this place called IND Gallery. The gallery posted pictures of some of the Japanese people that would show up in their fish gear, and that was just neat to see. You know, it's just, it's a cool thing. You think of fish as this American-only band, and like, oh, it's American music, it's jam band music. And yeah, they haven't done much international touring. They haven't had to, but their reach is very far. And it's always cool to see Japanese fans here. Meanwhile, on another island, our British correspondent Mark Lewis notes that perhaps there's just no appetite for fish in the United Kingdom and speculates that this may be partially due to British music fans' palates. Many American diehards will tell you that fish is something of an acquired taste, but it's hard to acquire if it's not even on the menu. Well, you have a scene, you have talented musicians, you have the venues, you have the weather, you have everything that we don't have. We have theatres, we have clubs, uh, we maybe have a blues rock tradition. We've never had the Grateful Dead, so our music stems from Rolling Stones and Beatles, but maybe Cream and Led Zeppelin and, and so on, Deep Purple. So we, we have a blues rock, hard rock tradition. Any new band springing up in the UK will be more will be of that style, and no new band is ever going to spring up and say, 
here's our new song and it's got a 10 minute guitar solo at the end of it and there is no place for that over here uh led zeppelin were doing 20 minute versions of dazed and confused so they do stretch out but they'd stretch out within a heavy rock or blues rock kind of framework whereas you know fish have, have got there's a background there in America, and I, I'm, and then you've also got all the you can throw a bit of bluegrass in there, you know, you can throw a few other styles of music in there, and it still resonate and have an audience. And we don't have that audience over here. If somebody wanted to do something like Slave to the Traffic Light over here, that would be completely new. Nobody sounds like that, and unfortunately, I think nobody would dare sound like that because people would likely walk out. And I remember watching, I've seen Widespread Panic at um, at Mud Island in Memphis, uh, which I believe is about a 5,000 population. And the guy next to me had a fish t-shirt on. We were talking about the venue and that it would be too small for fish. But I I said to him, there's no way they could fill this in England. And he was really surprised. And I said, look, we've never heard of them. They've just got no profile. They're very much in a North American band, at least for the last 20 years. And uh, to experience them, you have to go to America, which in Australia, if you've got a mortgage with Sydney prices, you can't do very often. It's very expensive to travel to America. Very long flights, about 14 hours on a plane. So uh, I don't get over there as much as I'd like. Wish I did. I've probably been over to America four or five times to see Fish or Trey. A lot of the fan experience is uh, watching webcasts, listening to shows, you know, listening to the latest show uh, on your way to work. The time difference is is interesting because the um, the shows here are mid morning lunchtime. So often you you have them on at work. Like I remember the first year Dix was on, I was I was at work, or the or the Baker's dozen. I was at work trying to work, and I couldn't work because these shows were incredible to have on in the background. I remember during the Baker's dozen, the uh, jam filled night. I was trying to work, and I was like, I can't work. This is this set's amazing. So I literally was streaming it, put on headphones, and went and sat out in a park and listened to. The that amazing cross-eyed jam from uh, the Baker's Dozen. So I was just sitting out in the sun in the middle of the day listening via the internet to fish on the other side of the world, jam at Madison Square Garden. And, you know, 20 years ago, you could, it took you six months to get a tape in the mail. So, uh, look, the experience living on the other side of the world now is, you know, not bad. It's pretty fantastic thanks to technology. So you don't get jet lag watching a webcast on Couch Tour, which is good. You don't have to pay, you know, $10 American, you know, $14, $15 Australian for a, for a watered-down Budweiser. The bathroom queues are a lot better on Couch Tour, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, and we're lucky in Australia that the time difference is mid-morning, middle of the day. I feel sorry for fish heads in Europe. The shows probably start at three or four in the morning. Here, at least, it's about 10 or 11 in the morning. So, you know, have some breakfast beers and watch it. Watch a webcast. From the very beginning of the worldwide pandemic, Fish began streaming their video archives as a way to keep connected to all their fans 
And since their return to live performances in front of full audiences earlier this year, the band has live-streamed all 35 of their 2021 performances thus far. That has not only been a luxury for fans who couldn't catch as many shows as they usually would, due to various pandemic complications, but it's also been an enormously unifying event for fans around the globe, for expats and foreigners alike. In Gamehenge, there are no foreigners, just fans who live a very, very, very far distance away. Whether that's our friend Dylan in Australia. It is very weird experiencing a tour from the other side of the world. Uh, often it's the middle of the day here, so you'll be listening to the concert at work or at the gym live from America because of the time difference. But that's a lot better than it was in the early days. I remember in, in 97, 96, 97, you'd just get email set lists and there'd be all these songs on there you didn't you didn't know the names of or hadn't heard before. You just have to guess what they were even what they even sounded like until, you know, six months from now you, you might be lucky to get a tape in the mail. There's a little small community here in Australia of fish heads and jam band heads. We've had a couple of little get-togethers. Uh, often we'll, we'll watch the New Year's Eve concert on New Year's Day, which is fun. It's a long it's a long afternoon. All our friends, New Year's Day, big public holiday. All our friends are at the beach. Sorry, I'm, I'm at home on the couch watching a concert all day. You're at a show at Dick's and you know your friends are on the other side of the world watching the webcast. So you're like texting them during the show, which is always fun. And, you know, they're having pancakes at <laughs> 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and coffee and you're drinking beers in, in Colorado. It's hilarious. The Burns Brothers in the UK. Yeah, the show starts at 1am and then it's like, you know, by the time you finish the three or four hour show, whatever, the sun's coming up. Yeah, it's time to go to work. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we've seen a few of them with some friends. That's, that's as good as it gets really over here, which, you know, it's still a fun time. Satoshi from Japan. As you guys know, most Japanese fans can't see fish this year due to COVID-19. Most of my friends watch dinner and movie on their couch from home. I also watch dinner and movie. It is like breakfast and movie for me because of the time difference. And while F. Alex Johnson relocated to Japan, his seasoned experience with the live streams is probably different than many of the locals. In Japan here, they did a thing called go to travel in the middle of the pandemic to jumpstart Japan's economy. They gave benefits for people to to travel around where you get money back. Hotels are really cheap. You get these vouchers. We did take advantage of it. The walls are really thin here in a lot of the houses and apartments. So people go to hotels to have sex. But for my wife and I, we, we used this opportunity to watch these fish shows uh, so we didn't bother the neighbors. Uh, so we'd go to these hotels. They've got some new, brand new hotels they put up for the Olympics. And we would go there and put, plug in our fire stick or whatever and blast these shows. If it's a, a 8 o'clock start on the East Coast, it's, it's happening at 9 o'clock in the morning. So we'd get some breakfast and we'd turn up the TV and we dance around on the bed. And the Beacon Jams too. I mean, the, the Beacon Jams were an incredible experience to be able to see that all happen for, for free. I mean, Trey, come on. We donated a bunch of times. I am 12 years, 14 years, 14 years sober, I guess. So I appreciate what Trey has done and is doing for recovery community. So uh, the Beacon Jams were just an incredible experience to be able to, to see and hear that group.
When we talk about global fish, we tend to focus on European dates in the late 90s, specifically 1997 and 98, as well as a tour of Japan in 2000. But Fish's initial European run took place in 1992, where they played 45-minute sets opening for If You Said Santana, You Jumped the Gun, because we're talking about... The Violent Femmes. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are a special guest from the United States. Fish has played a lot of places you may not have known about, but a fish presence in Korea? Surely that's an import from an expat. Sure enough, he goes by the name Jason Tully. I started my term in Korea in 2009. I had been backpacking through Asia for about six months uh, prior. I fell in love with Asia. I was like, man, I got to keep keep this up. I was running out of money. One of the reasons I, I dipped back home was because uh, of the, the Hampton News. I remember I was sitting in a, a hostel in China. It was my second day in China. And I got the email and I was just like, oh shit, they're back. The, you know, the beginning of it was like, I just, I was there for a few months and I was listening to Festival 8 while I was like, I was sitting in bed, I was watching the World Series on my computer and listening to like live fish. And I was like, man, this is crazy. Like I'm halfway around the world and, and this, you know, who'd have thought that you could do this? And I just felt like, man, I'm not missing out at all. Like I'm halfway around the world. It's, it's a different day. It's like a Sunday afternoon or whatever. And this is great. Like, I feel like I'm there. Like, I remember, like, my friends were there, and I was, like, texting, like, hey, guys, like, I, I can see this. The New Year's shows and the uh, Halloween shows, you would go out. It was a big night because we are 14 hours ahead or whatever. Go out for New Year's Eve. Go out for Halloween. Have a crazy night in Korea. Go home. Go to sleep. Wake up and watch fish. And it was like right on your TV. I mean, it was it was great. It was like a great way to spend the morning. It was like you're celebrating twice. And yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, obviously this couldn't happen, you know, 15 years ago, it couldn't happen if it was in the 90s or whatever, but, but with the way that technology has, has allowed us to have this experience, like you are connected. I mean, I'll never forget watching the gem set or the, uh, at Halloween, uh, the one where they did the, the Disney, the chilling grilling, really fun Halloween night in Seoul and just like hanging out with, like a buddy of mine, watching fish, doesn't get any better. It definitely kept me grounded in connecting with what was happening back in America. I mean, to me, listening to fish jams in foreign countries, I don't know what's different about it, but it's like, it's comforting. You know what else is comforting? Knowing that we'll be right back, and when we do, we'll have some soup for you. That's kind of true. Just ask Joel McHale. You'll see. When we think about Fish's global reach, we tend to think about the places Fish played because this is a band that makes lifelong fans out of just about everyone who has ever seen them live. Like our friend Lee Farber, for instance. 
My name is Lee Farber. My first fish show was March 14th, 1992 at the Roseland Ballroom in New York City, my senior year of high school. I'd have to say my first fish recording was probably Arrowhead Ranch from the previous summer, the probably 721-91 with the horns. That show traveled pretty quickly. Lee became what would be considered a fan by any other band's standards. He listened to their music, he liked the songs, the jams, the humor, the antics, the spectacle, the lights, the dancing, the rock and roll. But by Fish standards, he may have been considered more of a friendly onlooker than a fan. It wasn't until Lee caught the band in Europe in 1997 that he became indoctrinated. Just like the Baker's Dozen, we don't really do repeats here at Undermine, but this one quote from Lee bears repeating. But the idea of traveling to see them didn't appeal to me, and now, I'm, now I've completely taken the red pill or the blue pill or whichever pill it is that makes you leave your wife and kids and go see fish wherever they are. In other words, Lee knows the secret handshake. It's actually a secret language. And even though he first caught the band in 1992, he didn't catch the fire until 1997. Just months before Fish destroyed all of America, Fish seduced a select few in Europe. So in the summer of 97, I had actually decided to travel to Italy in typical 23-year-old fashion to follow a girl. It didn't work out, long story short. And there I was in Italy thinking, wow, I've got a week and a half, two weeks here with nowhere to be. I'm just going to, for the first time in my life, be on my own and explore this country. And I remembered hearing that Fish was going to be there. And like I said, they were just kind of a band in my rotation at the time. I was very familiar with them. I had been seeing them locally for five years at that point. But in my travels and my solitude, I kind of longed for a little bit of familiarity. So I based my travels around where they were going to be. And I saw that on July 5th, they were going to be in Lake Como. You know, Lake Como is not one of the kind of mainstay places that a a 23-year-old would automatically go to. It's not Rome, Venice, Florence. So it gave me an opportunity to go somewhere that I otherwise wouldn't have gone. And it happened to have been one of the most beautiful places on earth. So it was July 5th, 1997, in a town called Chernobyl, which was on Lake Como. And it was a free show in a little piazza right there in, in the middle of town. You know, I guess the last time I had seen fish before that was Pauley Pavilion at UCLA in December of 96. So I had grown accustomed to fish being an arena band at that point. So to see them setting up in this tiny little piazza, which, you know, it's really just like, I remember it was a cobblestone park right there on the water with the Alps in the background. And it was fantastic. Because it was a free show, it was a great mix of Americans and Europeans. But uh, that one set show was pretty significant for me for a couple of reasons. One was the moment that I really felt that paradigm shift in what Fish was doing was hearing Twist into Piper. Both were new songs, and it was a seamless transition from one to the other. And Piper at the time, Piper 
was not what it is now, which is Piper for me nowadays is a race to the peak. Back then it was all about the slow, really slow build, and then the repetitious vocal over and over to the point where it got hypnotic. And that was something I had never heard from a Fish song before. This slow build from nothing up to this chant that didn't make any sense. I couldn't even understand what they were saying, but it was so, it, they, were, they just repeated it so much that it became almost trance-like. It felt like a different fish to me. And little did I know that was kind of establishing a new baseline for what would happen in 97, 98, 99. The thing that was really striking for me with that show was that it was the first show where Trey asked Chris to turn the lights off during Hood so that he literally said, Chris, can you turn the lights off so we can see the mountains? The mountains being the Alps that were right behind us. And it was a real kind of pivotal moment for me, that very lost post-college year of, oh, that magic feeling, nowhere to go, not sure what to do with my life. And um, that Hood with the Alps and the atmosphere and the moonlight and the slow build, was really transcendent for me. Everyone's got a quintessential fish moment. 7597, The Hood, was my quintessential fish moment. And that was the moment at which I said, oh my God, I can do anything. And I credit that moment with coming back to the States after my trip and starting to write. That was the beginning of my career as a comedy writer and director, which I've been doing now for 20-something years. I'm sorry, did we not give Lee Farber a proper introduction? Lee is an Emmy Award-winning television writer and director who has worked on such productions as The Wayne Brady Show, and perhaps most notably, the long-running television series The Soup, hosted by Joel McHale. All those fish references you thought Joel made? Yep, they were written by Lee. And I'll, I'll just give you a, a little coda to that, which is that on my, in 2004, on my 30th birthday, one of my closest friends was shooting backstage footage at Coney Island, the, the Brooklyn show. So this would have been 6 And of course, I had tickets to go see the show. And she said, do me a favor, come a couple hours early and meet me in the parking lot. And she said, happy birthday. And she threw an all-access lanyard around my neck and said, you're my assistant cameraman for the day. And within five minutes, we were standing on stage in Coney Island watching them sound check. And we spent the rest of the time filming them in the practice room, in the dressing rooms, whatever, all that B-roll that you see on the Live in Brooklyn DVD. That was what we shot. And at one point, we were in Trey's dressing room and I had just won an Emmy, which was like insane. And I said to Trey, I told him that story about 7597 and how important that moment was for me and what had just happened to me at the Emmys and stuff like that and how I credited that show 
with kind of starting me on the path to feeling like I could accomplish something with my life. And he gave me the biggest hug and said, wow. He said, that's amazing. I remember that night and I'm so glad that that could be that for you. More recently, Lee wrote and directed the Discovery TV series Expedition Back to the Future, which sounds like it could be a podcast about fish in the year 1997, but no, it's actually of the Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd variety. He's also the director and writer of the movie The Lonely Italian. We have yet to see if he managed to sneak any fish references into these other projects like he did with Joel McHale on The Soup. So anyway, after 7-5, there was this mass exodus from Lake Como to Lake Garda, an equally beautiful lake where fish was playing on the beach. It's like you didn't even have to ask directions to get from one show to the next. You just followed the crowd. We saw the stage set up and I think they were just starting to actually do the rigging and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, the four band members showed up on the beach and just started hanging out and talking to people. You know, it was kind of a a reminder of when they were small. And it was great because I had remembered that uh, that particular day, July 6th, was my little brother's birthday, even though he was back in California. And he had just gotten into fish in a big way. So I ran to the local store and I bought a birthday card in Italian. And I went up to each of the guys and said, hey, it's my little brother's birthday. He's just gotten into you and he really loves the band. And each one of them said, oh my God, you have a birthday card? Give me. And they each grabbed it and wrote a happy birthday message to him. When I got back home, I bought him a t-shirt and I said, happy birthday. And he opened the card and was just blown away because it was a card from me and the four guys in fish. But at some point, they stopped swimming and hanging and doing whatever and just got up on stage to do their sound check. And they realized there was no getting people off the beach. It was a public beach. It, was, it wasn't like, okay, everybody leave. We have to do our sound check. So they just started tinkering with their instruments and checking their levels and stuff like that. Obviously, people at that point stopped swimming stood up from the sand and kind of gathered around the stage. So there were probably, I don't know, maybe 60 of us kind of in the middle of the day. I'm guessing this was like two or three o'clock. And Fish just started laying a sound check that didn't stop. I think it started with Oblivious Fool. Then there were some bells in the distance from somewhere on the lake, and Trey kind of went into Hell's Bells. And then at some point, they went into Mbop by Hansen, which was the kind of the hit song that summer. They did it with Fish as James Brown. 
Very strange. People started shouting out requests. I don't remember how, but it turned into a limbo contest with audience members coming up and singing karaoke. And if I remember correctly, the karaoke songs during the limbo contest were Another One Rides the Bus. A girl got up on stage and did her best to sing My Bloody Valentine's Only Shallow, which Trey, it turns out, was obsessed with. So he was really psyched. And then somebody came up and sang, and it stoned me. Not a big party song, kind of a melancholy Van Morrison classic. And the guy wasn't a singer, but he sang it in a very kind of earnest way. And I remember Paige in particular was really moved by how this guy sang, that he, when the guy finished and he was about to get off the stage, Paige took him aside and said, I just want to let you know that was really beautiful. And then after about an hour and 15 minutes, they said, all right, we'll see you tonight. And so we went above the beach into the little town where there was a total of one restaurant. A number of fans from the beach, I guess anyone who could afford to actually eat in a restaurant during their European travel, was also there, as were the band members, because that's where you ate. There was no other place to go. And at one point, I got up to go to the bathroom. I'm standing at the urinal and I look up and there's a piece of paper taped to the top of the urinal that says, buried alive, please. (laughs) So that was how... Somebody decided to make their request that they figured at one point, since we're in this restaurant, one of the four members of Fish would answer the call of nature, go into the bathroom, stand at the urinal, see that someone had requested Buried Alive, and while relieving himself, said, you know what? We haven't played that in a while. That's a great idea. What I couldn't help thinking was, I felt really badly for the local Italians that were in that restaurant that went into the bathroom and would see this strange note. It's like it's like you and I being in our hometown and a group of Italian tourists coming in and us going to the bathroom and seeing a note above the urinal that says, Scabriaba, per favore. Scarborough, Yarbor, pedophore, please. returned to Europe to catch fish in Barcelona in 1998, but he says even one year later, it was different. The venues were slightly larger, 
clubs had turned into theaters, and director Todd Phillips was there with a camera crew to capture the intimacy of a European tour. Ironically, the non-stop presence of a camera crew insulated the band in a different way from the spontaneous community interactions of just a year earlier. When I saw them back in the States in the summer of 97, just weeks after seeing them in such a tiny place in Europe, I remember being struck by how the same band could create a memorable experience in both kinds of venues. It could be memorable for its smallness and memorable for its bigness. The intimacy and the quiet of the shows by the banks of Lake Como, beside the Alps and under the moon, was every bit as striking as the bigness of Bowie's City's Bowie in Ventura just two and a half weeks later. And how the same band could just adapt to both environments and make each show special in an entirely different way was pretty amazing. like they say, think globally, dance locally. And they will also tell you to come back next week when we take another peek back to the future. Or rather, we catch up to now, the present moment, 4.0. We'll transition from global fish to fish in the age of a global pandemic. Feel free to change the dial because, dude, you've got a week. We'll see you then. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media, the leading music storyteller. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Written by Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Produced by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, Brad Tenbrook, and Don Jenkins. Production assistance and writing by Noah Eckstein and Julia Schuster. Social media by Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry. Show art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. This season of Undermine is all about the fish community, and since that's you, go ahead, get online and judge us. Please rate and review us on your podcaster, if it's favorable, that is. Oh, and your tour buddies would love a link to this episode, so don't let them down, and while you're at it, they want your extra mail orders too. Next week, not on Undermine. I love how the band will fuck with the audience and do whatever is like the least expecting thing. Like if everyone thinks they're gonna come back with down disease, it's gonna be the opener, you know, because of COVID, they're gonna open with something completely different. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. 
so I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.